Galatians chapter 3 is where we return this morning, beginning in verse 6. You can be turning there. I wonder if any of you are, are like me. Uh, maybe you are more settled than I am in some of these ways. My, uh, at any given moment, I feel like my favorite song that we sing in church is always up for grabs. So we, we sang, uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, and we finished, and I thought, that's my favorite song. We're going to talk about that song at lunch in my house this afternoon. And then we sang the third song, I Will Glory in My Redeemer. And I thought, oh, no, no, <laughs> that, that one is my favorite song. There's wonderful uh, words of praise and thanksgiving to lead us into our time. Thank you to you magi- musicians uh, who were serving us in that way. Uh, we, we pick up here in verse 6, although in just a moment when we read, we'll start with verse 5 because verse 6 picks up in the middle of a sentence. Uh, We have noticed some weeks more than others in this study that there have been particular theme words that uh, Paul is really harping on at different points in this letter that he's writing to the Galatians. And because of that, there are some words that we we wind up saying in our time in his word over and over again on a given Sunday morning. I think I mentioned to you that a few weeks ago, one of our younger in this congregation counted the number of times that I said the word law in that sermon, and it was a big, big number. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that was the case. Uh, It's going to continue to be the case this morning in terms of um, there being particular topics that he is really asking us to think carefully about. We don't really have a change in major topic as we come to verse 6 and down to verse 14. Uh, he is still going to be talking about salvation through faith, or salvation through, but by, by hearing with faith is how he's, he's phrased this. But there are a couple of new words that he is now bringing into his, uh, his, his walkthrough of this doctrine and how we ought to understand it. And so there are a couple of new words that we'll start hearing a lot starting this morning. One of them is the name. It's Abraham. Paul now brings Abraham into the mix here, and this is going to add several very important pieces uh, to what he is saying. Another word that we're going to start hearing quite a bit beginning this week is the word promise. Uh, We'll see it for the first time this morning, and only at the very end of our passage. He will say it in verse 14. Uh, He'll talk there about the promised spirit. But from that moment on, I mean, this, this bringing in the concept of promise this morning launches us into the rest of the chapter. He is going to be mentioning promise everywhere for the rest of chapter 3. It is in verse 16, verse 17, twice in verse 18, verse 19, verse 21, verse 22, verse 29. Promise, 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 promise. It's everywhere here as he finishes out this chapter. So we'll hear that word quite a bit going forward, just like we did law. But in order for us to get from law to promise, we have to go through Abraham. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We we will see in verses 6 to 14 really three different places of emphasis for us to give our attention. So there's going to be in verses 6 to 9 an inherently positive bent of Paul's words, toward the faith of Abraham. Then there will be a negative bent in verses 10 to 12 toward the curse of the law. So we'll have the faith of Abraham, verses 6 to 9, the curse of the law in verses 10 to 12. And then we're going to have, you could say, a merging of those two ideas together in the person of Christ in verses 13 and 14. So this morning, let's examine each of these. Let's hear the positive words he says about the faith of Abraham, the negative words about the curse of the law, and then see how they, uh, you could say, see how Christ completes both of them, uh, and what wonderful things this shows us about our Lord. Uh, let's, uh, Let's begin by reading the passage. If you're able, please stand with me as we read Galatians chapter 3. I'll start in verse 5, and we'll go down to verse 14. 
Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And here begins our passage this morning. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God before the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, though the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The first thing we see, we see in verses 6 to 9. It's this particular emphasis upon the faith of Abraham. And you can see in the way that verse 6 begins, he is going there as an example of what he was saying in the verses right before this. Paul has just said in verse 5 when he started this sentence that goes into verse 6, that God gave the gifts he gave to them, after their hearing of the gospel was accompanied by their believing the gospel. So they heard, proclaimed good news, they believed it, and gifts were given to them. There's a pattern that he is pointing them to in their own experience of salvation. And his first point here in verse 6 about Abraham is really a very simple one. It's simply the reminder that we have already found that pattern at work in the Old Testament. We've seen it in God's treatment of Abraham. He likens it in that way in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now he's pointing us there back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. You may remember that story uh, fairly well. As God again gives his promise to Abraham of offspring, and he leads him outside of his tent and he says, look up at the stars Go ahead and try to count them. Such will your descendants be. You remember that story? Uh, Paul gives us even additional uh, details as he tells us that when God said that promise to Abraham, Abraham stopped and considered his body. And he considered the body of his wife, Sarah, who was not only 90 plus years old at that point, but had been barren her entire life. He considered those things, and he believed God's promise. This was not a man who was just a simpleton, uh, and, and so he just believed whatever was being said to him without even thinking about the situation. He knew the details on the ground. He thought about them consciously, and he did not grow weak in faith by means of what he had seen because he believed the trustworthiness of this God who was making the promise. And that text tells us that when Abraham believed God's promise, that faith was credited to him as righteousness. That's the story that Paul is pointing us back to here. Uh, And connecting to what he's just said is true of the Galatians. Now it's important that we understand that for him to connect this behavior of God's back to Abraham, that connection does a lot more than just to prove that God has done this before. It's much more than that. There's a particular significance to the fact that this is tied to the person of Abraham in the course of redemptive history. What we're going to find in this passage is that that blessing of Abraham that God gave him, and that's recorded in Genesis 15, is something of the seat in the Old Testament of God's promise of salvation to mankind, whether Jew or Gentile. In other words, Abraham is significant 
because nobody has any hope coming after Abraham if they are not a son of Abraham. Because of what God has done in and through this particular individual in his redemptive plan, no one has hope that, how am I saying that? If they are not a son of Abraham. This is why verse 7 would matter. It's sort of his conclusion there. You see it? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You can hear implicit in that. What's really significant? What's significant is who are the sons of Abraham? Who are the true sons? It all hinges on that relationship. And his answer is, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, this is yet another place. We've done this several times already in this study. Uh, where Paul's more expansive words on the topic uh, that he gives to us in the book of Romans can fill in some details and give us an even fuller picture here. So if you would, yet again this week, turn to the book of Romans. I'd like to read a bit from there. Turn to Romans chapter 4. It's important for you to turn there because it's sort of a long portion I'm going to read here, and it's best for you to see it with your eyes. Romans 4 there's two, th- two things that you should listen for here as he talks about Abraham. One of them is that he, he, he emphasizes the timing in terms of when was faith credited to Abraham as righteousness. When did that happen in his life? And he's going to say, yeah, that happened years before he was given the sign of circumcision. That's going to be very important for us. Uh, you'll notice as well what he's going to say here about the fatherhood of Abraham. What's it like? What is significant about that fatherhood that he has for those who come after him? So those are two themes for you to listen for here. Um, I'm intending to start reading in verse 9, but this is based on, I'll just start reading in verse 7 because he's going to be talking about the blessing that he points to in verses 7 and 8. Listen to this blessing. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is that the way you think of God's blessing to Abraham? Because that's, he launches now in verse 9 into Abraham and the blessing God has given to and through Abraham. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Hope you noticed that. We'll look back at verse 12 in just a moment, but let's keep reading. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. You hear that? Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And we'll stop there. It is a long portion, I apologize, but I, I couldn't figure out a cutoff point as far as where should we read to help us understand what he's doing here in Galatians. All of that is very important. Think about what it's telling us about Abraham. The righteousness that he was given, verse 9, is the righteousness that comes, verse 7, as one's sin is covered. 
it came pre-circumcision, meaning that circumcision was not required to receive this forgiveness and this righteousness. And in terms of the fatherhood of Abraham, uh, verse 16 says quite a bit about that. Uh, All his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. But I, I would actually ask you to look again at verse 12 as we're thinking about the fatherhood of Abraham. This is very enlightening and very important. Do you see in verse 12, Abraham is not to be seen as the father of the circumcised only, but also as the father of the faithful. He makes that point in verse 12, to make him the father of the, excuse me, verse 11 is where this begins. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. But look at verse 12 when he talks about the Jews. And to make him the father of the circumcised who aren't merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. Even for the Jews, if you were to be a son of Abraham, in the way that matters, the way that Paul is describing, what is the significant factor for them? Even for them, the significant factor is not the circumcision. It's the sharing in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. So what you really want to inherit from Abraham is not so much his genetic code. Although, as we have said, being of his genetic line, being of the children of Israel, had tremendous advantages and blessings in the Old Testament. But what you really want to inherit from him isn't so much his genetics, Verse 16, you want to inherit the same faith that he, the same promise that he received, excuse me. And you receive that promise in the same way that he received it. He's making that point abundantly clear there in Romans 4. Come back now to Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. So here's what we can say about this fairly simple statement in verse 7. To be sons of Abraham is to be recipients of the promise of Abraham or the promise that God gave to Abraham. And Paul's point here is that it is those who are of faith who receive this inheritance. You see what he's doing there. This is his conclusion in verse 9 also. He says there, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 7 and verse 9. He says it both. And in between those two verses, we have verse 8. Verse 8 is sort of a, if you could try to define density by by giving the example of a sentence, verse 8 would would do not too bad of a job. I mean, a lot packed into uh, a particular statement. What we find in verse 8 is that, Abraham not only received his gracious gift by means of faith, but he had also been given this good news that righteousness was going to come to all tongues, tribes, and nations in exactly the same way that he had received it, by faith in the promises of God. He had received a proclamation of that uh, reality as well. And this, in light of verse 7, that those of this faith Um, They are sons of Abraham. In other words, God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, this is what he quotes there. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was a promise that the blessing to Abraham and his children was not a blessing with national limitations. This is profound, what Paul is saying here in verse 8. Let me say that again. The blessing to Abraham and his children was not a blessing with national limitations. Now, there's some things we need to qualify that with, and we need to think here. I hope you had your orange juice this morning, or maybe an energy drink. Some of you drink energy drinks in the morning. I don't know what your cardiologist has to say about that, but I'm not not him. But if you did that this morning, you picked a good day to do that. We need to think here. Uh, very carefully. Those blessings to Abraham and to his children. We're thinking about the Old Testament. We're thinking about those promises 
from which really sprang, sprung the, uh, the, the Old Testament line of the people of, of God, the, the storyline of the Old Testament, right? Uh, those blessings to Abraham and his children, were they limited to a particular nationality? I say, I'll put it like that because there are, you know there's a spectrum here. I say the answer to that question is yes and no, depending on what you mean. It's, in other words, I would throw a flag at the question because it is more complicated than that question would allow. It depends on how you're thinking of it. Do those blessings, are, are they limited to a particular nationality? The answer is yes, national limit to those promises. In the sense that, as he's, and he's going to say this next week, and Paul knows what, what comes up in our mind uh, before it gets there and is ready to anticipate it. Yes, national limit to those promises in this sense, that the seed of Abraham, the seed of his promise, it's Christ. The Christ will come from Abraham's physical line. This is sworn to him. All who are of faith of Abraham are sons of Abraham, but the Messiah is not going to come from some random other nation where someone hears and believes. The Messiah will come from Abraham's physical line. And thus, if the Messiah, if, if Abraham's seed is the recipient of these blessings, then in that sense, is there a national limit to the blessings? Yes. The blessings are aiming us to the true son of Abraham. The Messiah. We know him as now by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we say things like, Jesus is Israel. Not doing anything unjust or unfair to the Old Testament. It's saying this is, this is where those promises made to Abraham were always moving. They were moving to a particular seed, and that's the point that he'll make next week. Jesus is Israel, or Jesus is the culmination of the people of God, these sorts of things. So, in other words, with that yes answer, here's what we, what we want to understand. It's not as if the physical component of Abraham's line is meaningless. Not at all. And the best way to see that is with circumcision, the very thing that they are wrestling with, uh, that the Galatians and the Judaizers are wrestling with. The circumcision absolutely had a national limit to it, didn't it? That was part of the very intention of it, was to be one of many pieces God gave them that set them apart as a nation, as a physical people. That physical people set apart, uh, the Jews, served a tremendous purpose. And their marked off and protected existence, which that's what it was, that's what circumcision did. Think about even things like the... Uh, food restrictions. Think about intermarriage prohibitions. They were forbidden by God to go and marry from the nations around them. Why would that be the case if the physical nature of them as a people was irrelevant? Wasn't it relevant at all? That's, that, that's a part of what they were created for. Uh, that protected existence of the old covenant community produced Abraham's seed, the Messiah. It must be protected as it leads to the Messiah who is to come. Some have put it this way. I find this catchy and helpful. The old covenant was pregnant with the new covenant. To me, that is a very helpful little statement. Are we saying in this, as Paul says, that it's those of faith and not those of the physical line? Is he saying that the old covenant, its administration, its reality, its people, was somehow irrelevant? Not at all. Without the Old Covenant, the New Covenant does not come. The Old Covenant was pregnant with the New Covenant. I don't know. Maybe I'm a visual learner. That, that is helpful to me. Uh, you could make a funny-looking cartoon out of that sentence, I think. Very significant that physical people, that covenant people. But what do we see here in verse 8? The blessing of Abraham that corresponds with the forgiveness of sins, the covering over, did not come by the covenant people. It came from the original promise made to Abraham, received by faith. 
Again, verses 7 and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's maybe worth pondering here. Do we thank God that salvation does not hang on our physical family histories? We've got a lot of families, a lot of family trees and backgrounds and, and things that the Lord, in many cases, had to dramatically overcome or rescue from so that we could come to a humble point of receiving the gospel. Some are uh, able to look back in their family past and be very quick to thank God that your status before him does not hang on your physical family history. But this is also a good note for the kids among us to really perk up and pay attention to, the children in our church family. I always hope to see a bunch of little eyes pop up. Kiddos, yeah? Um, this is a really important thing for you to hear and remember and think about. None of us have ever been forgiven by God, saved by God, because of the family that we were born into. I've heard it put this way. One of my, one of my teachers in the past, very memorable guy, he said, God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. And he's meaning it in this kind of a sense. That's, boy, some people are so catchy. Here's the question, you kiddos, that I still have your attention. This is the question that you have got to take out of Galatians 3 then, as he's talking about these differences. Uh, have I... Have I trusted God's faithfulness? Have I been taught that God's made promises to sinful people and that he never lies? That I can trust his promise and I'm doing, always doing a good, proper thing? Is he worthy of my trust? Have I, have I put my faith in the promises of God like Abraham did before me? When God's word told me um, that I am, <clears throat> when God's word told me that I'm a sinner who is not righteous in his sight as I stand on my own, did I believe him when he told me that? When God's word said that God in his love has sent his only begotten son to stand in the place of sinners so that they could find forgiveness, did I believe him when he said that? He told me it's necessary. He told me that he has done this work in the person of his son. When God commands me to put my trust in the work that Christ finished at the cross, and that when I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, that I will be saved forever from all of my sins, given the righteousness of Jesus himself, when he commanded me to do that and gave those promises, did I believe him? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And as he acts in that way, he is something of, thinking redemptive historically, something of a prototypical man of faith, as it were. His story in that way is the story of those who are united in Christ. So it's the story of the life of every believer. How were we saved? I could pick names from among you. Um, I'll, I'll, I decided to pick your, some of your elders, I, uh, that they wouldn't mind maybe being put on the spot. What is the grand conversion story for the elders of this church? Ken believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's this conversion story. Lots of details in there. None of our stories are the same. On what basis was he saved? James believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And they're blessed with that blessing. Now, let's, let's shift gears a bit as we come to verse 10, because now things become negative where they have been positive. Verses 10 to 12, we hear him now bring in the concept of the curse of the law. Let me reread verses 10 to 12. He says, For all who rely on works of the law 
are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. I've said before, when Paul talks about works of the law, he's speaking collectively of all that the law demands, all that the law would call us to and require of us. And really, the operative word there is the word all. And that's what Paul emphasizes here. All. He's teaching us about the nature of law as means of relationship with God. His words in verse 10 make that especially clear. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. He makes here in verses 10 to 12, he makes really uh, two main arguments that are sort of, you, you, um, if you know the word syllogism, this is like a logical term. Uh, this thing is true, and you know it. This thing is true, and you know it. Therefore, this thing must be true, and you can't do anything about it. And if you have said something else, you're forced by sheer power of logic to have to change your mind because you can't get it's airtight argumentation. That's what he does here. I would not want to stand up against Paul in a debate or something like that, let alone if he's inspired by the Spirit of God as he's writing or speaking. There's two main arguments he makes here. One of them is in verse 10. Look at verse 10 and look at it in reverse. He ends by quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So there's the first piece of evidence for this argument. Uh, the second piece is sort of an unstated reality that everyone knows. And that's this. Nobody keeps the law perfectly. Anybody in here disagree with that? Think you're the exception? In your own experience, you've, you've noticed that you managed to keep the law perfectly? No one better have their hands up. Paul doesn't even need to mention it because it's a matter of course. No one keeps the law. But the problem is Deuteronomy 27 said, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the law. So what's his conclusion? That's how he begins verse 10. If those two things are true, then here's what's true. All who rely on works, all who put themselves under the law, are under a curse. Not because the law is bad, it's because you can't keep the law. Try that and you find yourself under a curse. The very nature of the law is such that perfect obedience is required. It's the same point that James makes in James 2, verses 10 and 11. You remember when he said there, you can, it's the same point. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It commands you to keep all of it. If you break this part, the whole thing shatters into pieces. So this is the first argument that he's making here in verse 10. The second argument takes up verses 11 and 12 together. And here he's still quoting in the Old Testament. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4, and he quotes Leviticus 18.5. So now he's getting law and prophets in here in this argument that he's making. Look at the end of verse 11. We hear from Habakkuk here, the answer to this question. Habakkuk, who are the righteous? And here's what Habakkuk says. The righteous shall live by faith. But then verse 12 comes in. The problem with the law is that the law is not of faith. It's what he's been doing the entire letter of Galatians, pointing out that there are two different paths of attempting to come into relationship with God. The law is not of faith. It says even of itself, and then he quotes Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them, the one who tries to live by them, by the law, uh, the one who does them shall live by them. You will live or die on the basis of this if you uh, seek to do that. 
In other words, that man will not be consciously living by faith. He will be living by attempted law-keeping. He'll be working to earn life by his law-keeping. And I hope when you hear these words, the notion of a person working to earn life, I hope that the earlier parts of Romans 4 than what we read are ringing in your ears. We have read and I've mentioned uh, so many times now the Romans 4 pictures of the believing man and the working man in early Romans chapter 4. And his whole point there is that the working man, here's what's true of him, he is not the one who will find justification. So what's the conclusion in this second argument? It is evident, therefore, that no one is justified before God by the law. So by the end of verse 12, here's what we have. If we could just put, put this in one picture. Some people are blessed, according to verse 9. Who is blessed? Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Some people are cursed. According to verse 10, who is cursed? All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And it just further helps us to know what he meant in Galatians 2, 19 and 20, when he said, through the law, I died to the law. How? I have been crucified with Christ. This is what was so significant from that. So see, he's not jumped onto an altogether new uh, line of thought here, but by bringing in Abraham and by comparing it with the curse that comes in the law, we can see these things all the more clearly. So now we take those two ideas and we put them together in verses 13 and 14. Christ, redeemer from the curse of the law. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There are some things that we need to examine here. Uh, the first one is a question. Who exactly is he talking to here? Verse 13. Who is us? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. A lot of trees have been murdered. Uh, can you murder a tree? A lot of trees have been felled dealing with this question. Uh, is he referring specific, in a specific way to Jews here in light of what he's been saying? Or is he talking about something else? There's, there's people on both sides of that question who still come to the very same conclusion about what Paul's saying here, so it's okay. But those who see him as talking about Jews specifically, here's what they say. I don't agree with this. But they make some good points. One thing they say that is right is, Jews are the ones who are under the law, according to Paul. Paul never speaks of Gentiles as a people under the law. Jews are under the law in a unique sense. And you can tell, for example, if you look at Galatians 4.21, he's talking about Gentiles there, and he says of them, they're those who desire to be under the law, which means they're not there currently, but they're coming to be convinced that that's actually a good place to be. So they would like to put themselves under the law and become as Jews. But if he says it like that, they're not under the law uh, currently, which is true. So is, he, is Paul saying here, um, Christ redeemed the Jews from the curse of the law? Or, and I think this is, this is what he's actually doing, is there a way that he is speaking of all believers here? I do think that's the right way to view this. It makes the most sense of the passage to understand, for example, just because Gentiles are not under the law in the way that Jews are, doesn't mean that they are not subject to and need relief from the curse of the law. We are talking about a couple of different things here. The curse of the law is something that no one escapes. Jews are under the Mosaic law in particular, and there are covenantal consequences to that. Uh, that's true. But that law that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament is simply a picturing of what we all know to be the case. There is an eternal, unchanging law 
uh, of God. We could speak of it in that way, and the New Testament does in some places. So, for example, in Romans chapter 2, one thing he makes very clear is that the moral requirements of God that took on a particular codified form in the Mosaic Law are already written on the hearts of all mankind. So that their own instincts, Gentiles, their own God-given instincts about right and wrong, which they violate, show them to have failed before God's righteous requirements. It's easy to see in just a simple question that those who are not under the Mosaic law, are they still condemned without Christ before the courtroom of God? And the answer is yes. So there is a violation. There is a curse that comes from the eternal, perfect requirements of God. Romans 2, verses 15 and 16 is where I was pointing us to. Here's what he says. Listen to this language. He says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. By what standard will all mankind be judged? Well, it's the same standard, and one way we can describe it is the standard of the perfect law of God. You fall short of that, you fall underneath the curse of the law. So I see this in verse 13 as being a statement about all of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now secondly in this section, one thing we must do as well is we must be able to sit back in our seats a little bit and just stand in amazement. Because what this is really in verse 13 is it's the gospel condensed into a single sentence. You may have tried to do that at points and found how difficult it can be to condense the good news of the gospel into a sentence. Here's one way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. I wish we could do this as if it were the first time that we have heard it. We just can't manage to do that. But I wish we could. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. There is a man out there who has done some work. And because of his work, our deepest need is forever satisfied. Our greatest fear that we could ever be afraid of is turned away. Just done, turned away. Never to come again. The greatest debt that we have ever carried has been paid in full as a result of this person's work. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How could we ever thank him enough? We can't. And the day is never going to arrive when his people will be done thanking him and praising his name for what he has done. Now, how did he do this? Verse 13 continues, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So here is language of substitution, isn't it? He couldn't rescue us from our curse simply by canceling it or getting a big eraser and erasing it. He couldn't do that lest God be wicked. God's justice would never allow such a thing. And so that's not what Christ did. He did not redeem us from the curse of the law. or That's in redemption. So he didn't rescue us from the curse of the law by erasing it. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became the very curse that we have all come under in our stead. And he took upon himself the full penalty for our sin. We've heard from Spurgeon a few times in this study. Let's hear from him again. This is what he writes about this. He did not forgive the sin without punishing it, but he exacted the full penalty 
without the abatement of a solitary jot or tittle. Jesus Christ, our Savior, drank the veritable cup of our redemption to its very dregs. He suffered beneath the crushing wheels of divine vengeance, the same pains and sufferings that we ought to have endured. He bore our sins that he might bear them away by the fact of bearing them himself. This is the central doctrine of the gospel. And of course, all we're hearing there with him is another man's attempt to characterize what we're already told in Isaiah 53. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, Paul adds a quote from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 here, to drive home the reality of Jesus' status as being cursed. When he says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We don't need to say much here, but we do need to clarify one thing. He doesn't mean by this that someone is cursed by God Anytime he is hanged, plenty of innocent, there are big pieces of even Jewish history where faithful, innocent Jews are crucified uh, by their enemies. That, doesn't, that didn't make them cursed by God. And Jesus was not cursed by God because he was hanged on a tree. What he means is that death by hanging in this way was the outward sign in Israel of already being cursed by God. And so as Jesus dies, crucified on a cross, he's not cursed because of that. The fact of his death in that way is just further demonstration of the fact that he, that he has borne our curse in, his, in our place. So this is what the significance is of what he adds there. Now coming to verse 14 at last here, what verse 14 does then is it takes this declaration and sort of brings it to a conclusion. It summarizes the entire argument up to this point. Christ redeemed us from our curse by tanking it on himself. What was the result of this redemptive work of our Lord? Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I agree with the commentators that see Paul using that pronoun we very deliberately. He's not suddenly forgotten that he's a Jew and not a Gentile. And so, oops, he says we. That's obviously not what he's doing. He is demonstrating by identifying with them in this way. He's demonstrating the complete unity that now exists between Gentiles and himself, between Gentiles and believing Jews. There is now and neither Jew nor Gentile as they jointly receive the promised Holy Spirit. Abraham set the stage in his moment of redemptive history for what God is teaching us and doing among us and showing us in terms of justification by faith. Those who are of his faith will receive his blessing. But God's perfect requirements have made a cursed race of us all sending us to no blessings, sending us to nothing but curses. Where does all of this tension find resolution? It finds its resolution in Christ Jesus. We said at the outset this morning that we're going to hear about the hope and faith of Abraham, the promise of Abraham. We're going to hear about the curse of the law. Well, listen, here's what we find when Paul's done here. You can find no hope in any of God's promises. None except by union with Christ. You can find no relief from any of God's condemnations, none, except by union with Christ. You see how even a passage like the one we've looked at this morning, even a passage as technical and theological as this one is, and it is, this is a heavy passage, winds up being a simple presentation of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. All the promises are yes and amen in him, in Christ Jesus. All sin finds forgiveness in him who bore its penalty. It is the very reason why in our lives of praise, 
we now sing things like the words that we are just about to sing together. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. That's what we're about to sing. And it's the truth. This is what victory really looks like in the universe. Christ exalting, self-abasing. Only the work of the Spirit can produce such miraculous things. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the finished work of your Son on our behalf. From him and through him and to him are all things. And Lord, we pray that you would help us more and more to put ourselves in that category, to put our lives, the experiences that you lead us through, the things we might have hoped for that you had other plans for, the uh, trials that come our way. Lord, help us to put everything about us in that category. It was never for us. It was always for the sake of bringing glory to your Son. Father, continue your good work in your people, making us into the image of your Son and making us glad for that image as we see it reflected. We pray in his name. Amen.